There we go. Well, I hope you all had a marvelous Christmas Day yesterday. Um, I hope you were able to spend some time with family, maybe friends, and I hope that there was some moment during the day where you just sort of like had a restful sigh of joy and thought, this is as it should be. Um, I had one of those moments yesterday. The kids had opened presents and we had eaten a wonderful breakfast and I was laying on the couch just enjoying things and life and thought, man, this is, I like this. <laughs> this is all right. This is as it should be. And I hope that you were able to have at least one of those moments yesterday. But I do know at the same time that even if you did have one of those moments, that for some of you, Christmas is particularly hard. Maybe this Christmas is the first time that you have celebrated with the, without a particular loved one there. Maybe Christmas brings up uh, some tragic circumstance from years gone by that happened around the holiday season um, that makes each year difficult. It reminds you of what happened, and it's just hard to get through the holiday season. And there are moments of joy in the midst of it, but there's also moments of grief and of sadness in the midst of it. And even when we turn to Scripture and we read the account of the Christmas story of Christ's birth, there's a mixture of joy and of tragedy in the Christmas story. I mean, in Luke 2, which we read on Friday night at our Christmas Eve service, there is an announcement of great joy that will be for all people because the Savior has been born in Bethlehem, the announcement to the shepherds, and it's, it's filled with wonder and with joy and with hope. And then we turn to our passage for this morning in Matthew chapter 2, and there is this unbelievably tragic event. It's devastating what happens here. And you can't really make sense of why Christ has come into the world without pondering for, for at least a moment the brokenness of the world. I mean, this is the reason why he came, because it's broken. It's, it's messed up. Things aren't right. We have those fleeting moments of restful joy, but then fairly quickly anxiety comes and fear and frustration and anger, and it, it's a mixed bag the way we experience life now. The song that we sang this morning, Joy to the World, says this, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the reach of the curse is extensive, right? It covers all of creation. But the beauty of the Christmas story is the blessings of grace extend beyond the reach of the curse. There's a limit to what the curse can do, and grace goes beyond that. And often, as we will see today, in the moment when we are experiencing the curse of sin and the brokenness of the world in all of its fullness, and there's, there's anxiety and there's frustration and there's anger and there's brokenness, that is the time when the glorious light of Christ's coming shines through the most. And it shines through to give hope and to give joy. And so turn to Matthew 2. We'll be in verses 16 to 23 today. And here's what we're going to see. Two unlikely gifts of grace brought by Jesus to a broken world. You have to see the brokenness of the world, and we will uncover that today. But there are two unlikely gifts of grace. Two unlikely gifts brought to a broken world. And of course, they're brought by the coming of Christ. The first one of these is that 
hope in, there is hope in suffering. This is the gift. Hope in suffering that suffering will end. This is in verses 16 through 18. So in the first part of Matthew 2, with the Christmas story, we saw the wise men show up from the east and they bring their gifts. They're looking for the king who has been born. He's the born king of Israel. That is his rightful place as the king. And then we also saw Herod, who is sort of a usurper at this point and is, has taken the throne and is reigning in Israel and is not the true king. And we saw that Herod was troubled by the the news of this coming king. And then we saw God warn Joseph in a dream to flee from Herod and to go into Egypt. And we talked about what that means, that he went into Egypt and then would return again. And he was instructed to go into Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. But now you get to verse 16, and we find out exactly what happens Because Herod is angry. What does he do in response to this coming king? Look at verse 16 there. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, it probably didn't take very long for this to happen because Bethlehem was only about five miles southwest of Jerusalem, so not a long journey. So he would have fairly quickly figured out that the wise men weren't coming back through to report to him about this king, and he would have figured out that he'd been tricked, and so he puts this unbelievably wicked plan into action. I mean, this is a shocking display of rage and paranoia. If you'll remember last time we talked about Herod being a particularly paranoid individual, how he'd had two of his sons strangled because he thought that they were trying to usurp his throne. Well, we see that played out here. Now, if you, if you look into this, Bethlehem was not a big town or a big village. And so in all likelihood, this was not a large number of children. Now, that's not to downplay the significance of this, because even if it's any any number of children, even a small number of children, it's tragic. Herod dispatches soldiers to a village to go and find all of the baby boys under two years of age and to target them and to kill them. I mean, it's a despicable act of cowardice that he pulls off here. Now, you have to see this thing that he does and this this act of cowardice that he does here to make sense of what we read in verses 17 and 18. Look there. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew connects this event after the birth of Jesus with Herod killing the children in Bethlehem. He connects this event back to the Old Testament. You can see in verse 17 that we find our word, the word we've been looking at throughout this whole series, the short series in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. You can see the word in verse 17, then was fulfilled. There's our word again. This time, as Matthew uses the word, he connects it to a specific prophet. Look what he says. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So now we know where to look for this Old Testament quotation. And the quote here is taken from Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. So I want you to turn in your Bible back to Jeremiah 31, because we're going to spend a little bit of time there to help you understand what is going on and why Matthew chooses to quote this here. Let me explain this a bit. Jeremiah, of course, is an important prophet in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was a prophet who actually watched the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He he watched the whole thing unfold. He was there when the people of Judah were carried off into exile in Babylon. He watched it. And this verse in Jeremiah 31 and Verse 15, you'll see, look there, a voice is heard in Ramah. Okay, now where is this, and why does he mention this place called Ramah here? So Ramah was almost the opposite of Bethlehem. It was about five miles northeast of Jerusalem. And this was the place, we find out later in the prophet Jeremiah, that as the Babylonians invaded Israel and as they destroyed Jerusalem, they would round up the people and they would, this was like a staging ground for exile. And so they would take all the people this short distance, about five miles to Ramah, and they would organize them there and they would put them into groups most likely, and then they would send them under armed watch and exile them on the long journey to Babylon. And so this is a sad, sad place. I mean, picture what's going on here. It's an army that has invaded. They're burning things to the ground. They're destroying your city, destroying the temple. Israelite soldiers are getting killed. You get grabbed and sent up to Ramah. You've lost contact with your family. And it's a tragic place. People are frantically, and he presents here mothers in particular, are frantically looking for their loved ones, wondering what has happened. Mothers are figuring out that their sons have been killed in battle. Mothers are realizing that they've lost track of their little ones and they can't find them and maybe they're never going to find them again as they are exiled into Babylon. And so the people are here at this staging ground coming to grips with the reality that their home has been destroyed, their children are lost, and they are going to take a long journey into a foreign land and be exiled from God's promised land. And notice here in verse 15 what he says. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. And then look what he says. Rachel is weeping for her children. Who is this? Is this some Israelite woman who is alive at this time? No. Rachel, in Scripture, is the wife of Jacob, of course. And Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His 12 sons give their names to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And so... The reason that Jeremiah uses Rachel's name here is he's using it metaphorically to present her as the mother of the entire nation. So let me try to give you an example of what this would be like. Let's say that England went to war and a newspaper reported something like this. Queen Elizabeth is weeping for her lost children. What would they be saying? They would be saying, 
The sons of England, the warriors, the soldiers have been lost in battle and the whole nation is weeping and the representative head, the mother of the nation, is weeping over the men who are killed. That's the picture that Jeremiah is giving here. Now, what's interesting about Rachel is that she actually, if you remember from Genesis, she actually died giving birth to Benjamin. And so her life ended in a tragic way, and she was never able to raise her sons. She named them and then died. And so in Jeremiah 31.15, Jeremiah pictures her metaphorically as weeping once again over the results of the fall, over the brokenness of the world, over the tragic loss of life that is happening to Israel. And it's happening through the exile. It's almost like he's saying, Rachel is watching all of this unfold, and yet again, she's weeping over what's happening to the nation of Israel. Now, before we make the jump to Matthew 2, I want to explain one more thing about Jeremiah 31. There's one more important piece you have to understand to be able to grasp why Matthew's quoting this and what's going on here, and then the lessons for you and I today, all right? So stay with me on this journey. This chapter falls in a section of the book of Jeremiah called the Book of Consolation. It's chapter 30 to 33. A lot of Jeremiah is really tragic, and it's, it's judgment on these other nations, and it's the fall of Jerusalem, and it's really hard stuff. But this section is a book of consolation and of comfort. All of chapter 31 is very positive. It's very hopeful, except for this one verse. <laughs> this is it. Matthew has pulled the negative verse, the lamentation, out of this chapter and has quoted it. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 1. If you're there, still in the book of Jeremiah, look at verse 1. This sets the tone and the theme for the whole chapter. At that time, declares the Lord, he's looking to the future, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. And so he's looking forward to a time when there will be restoration for the nation of Israel, and God will once again be their God. They won't be sinning and rebelling against him and having exile come. They'll be in a close relationship with him again. God will bring his estranged people back to him and back into a relationship with him. Look at verse 7. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Verse 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Look down at verse 31. This is the promise of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You're familiar with that passage, I'm sure. This whole chapter is one of hope and of comfort and of consolation for the nation of Israel in the midst of their exile. So why does Jeremiah put this verse, verse 15, right in the middle of this chapter? It seems like it's out of place. This lament here 
deals directly with the circumstances that are happening at this time. Okay? It's dealing with the current circumstances, but here's the key. You got, you got to get this. This places this loss and this tragedy and the experience of loss and tragedy within God's greater purposes for Israel. This verse places the difficulty of the exile and the, the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of sin within the greater hope of what God is doing and the bigger story. And so what he's saying here, Jeremiah is communicating through this, is that Israel will suffer and they will suffer greatly. It will be very difficult. But in the middle of that suffering, there is hope. And there's hope for a return to the land. And there's hope for God to make a new covenant with you. In fact, I want you to look at what comes right after this verse. Because you have to see this in order to understand what Matthew's doing as well. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, and he's speaking to these mothers here in Ramah. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. And then here's God talking again. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Now, jump forward to Matthew 2. You understand the context a little better. So here's what Matthew's doing, and here's why he uses this word fulfill here. He picks up this text, and he uses this text because he wants to draw our attention to the regular occurrence of brokenness and tragedy in the lives of the people of the nation of Israel. He wants us to see that this is something that has happened to them all along, all the way back to Rachel dying before she could even meet her son, to Egypt and what happened in Egypt. It's hard to read this story in Matthew 2 without thinking back and thinking that Matthew is wanting us to understand and picture what Pharaoh did to the little boys in Egypt, having them thrown into the Nile River, and then moving forward to the exile and what happens to the children of Israel there. All of this, this pattern of suffering that happens to the nation of Israel, you now have the same thing happening here in Bethlehem. Once again, the people are suffering and their children are being killed. But Matthew quotes this text because he wants you to see that pattern of suffering and he also wants you to think of the hope for the future. And here's the question we should ask. It's happening again. Okay, when will the hope be realized for Israel? How will the new covenant that is promised in Jeremiah 31 come? How will tragedies like the one in Bethlehem cease? 
What is going to bring these type of things to an end? And what is going to make this right? Matthew quotes this here because the answer to all of those questions is through the birth of this child who has come. The birth of this born king. He's the one that fulfills all of this and will bring it to an end and set things right. Now let's bring this forward to you and I today. Do a little application here. Both Matthew and Jeremiah are writing of hope in the midst of suffering. That's the big theme here. How is that possible? Look, if you've suffered to any extent, whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, the loss of a loved one, doubt in your faith, whatever it may be, when you suffer, it tends to consume all of your attention. It's hard to think about anything else. It's hard to think about anyone else. All of your focus is directed toward that suffering and toward that pain. It becomes all that you can see. So how can you possibly lift your eyes up and have hope in the middle of suffering? And I want to help us think about that question and answer it from the other book that the prophet Jeremiah wrote. He wrote a a second book here. It's much shorter, and it's the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a poem that Jeremiah wrote as he watched Jerusalem get burnt to the ground. As he watched the invaders come in, watched his people get carried off. I mean, imagine experiencing this. A foreign army, army of invaders comes into your city and begins killing your friends, people you know, your countrymen, begins burning buildings to the ground, and you are sitting there watching the whole thing unfold. That's what the book of Lamentations is. It's his meditation on this. It's his, a poem that he wrote trying to understand and come to grips with what has happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to Lamentations 1, 1 through 3. I'll put all these on the screen. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? He's talking about Jerusalem. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the province, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. What a description of his experience of watching this happen. Emotional darkness, depression, fear, all of that is being described here. And of course it is as he watches what is happening to his city. Further in chapter 3. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. 
I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood or the bitterness and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. The emotional darkness here is thick for Jeremiah. And he can't see a way out of it. It's like he's trapped in this darkness and this experience of suffering. And you can see here in verse 18, he says, so has my hope from the Lord. It's perished. It's gone. He doesn't even understand how he could come to hope in the Lord. Have you ever felt like that? Like there's no way out of it? Like it's too deep. It's too much. You can't handle it. Too much darkness. There's no way out of this. And he builds up to this point in the book of Lamentations. And then I think this is one of the most beautiful turns in all of Scripture. And it brings you to the very center of the book. The whole book is structured to point toward these verses in the center. The suffering is still there, right? It's not like Jerusalem suddenly got built back and everything is A-OK and Babylon just left. The suffering is still here for Jeremiah. The city's still being burnt to the ground. But then listen to what he says in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And when I read that, I want to shout, what do you call to mind, Jeremiah? What are you thinking about? What has gotten into you that has turned the corner and beginning to get you out of this darkness, even in the midst of difficulty and of suffering? What gives you hope when everything is going wrong? And then here's verses 22 to 26. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Remember the context of this. It's not some beautiful scene set in the English countryside. It says Jeremiah is literally sitting there watching his city burn to the ground. And there are two key parts to this for you and I to think about. First of all, remember. Remember specifically the steadfast, merciful, faithful, committed love of God. Remember that. It doesn't cease. Whatever the circumstances might be, it is there. Remember it. And then what action do we take? We wait. And that is the hard part, right? We wait. We wait for him. We wait because his steadfast love never ceases. We look to him and we trust that he will do the right thing in his timing. And here's the beauty of this for you and for me. We live after Matthew 2. We live after the king has come. The king has come. He's been born as a human being, as our representative. He's died on the cross He's risen from the dead, winning a great victory over sin and over death, and he's coming again. That's where we live. And all of this suffering will find its end in him. 
It will reach its termination point. He took the suffering so that ultimately things could be made right and we wouldn't have to. And so what do we do as we wait for him? We resituate our lives in this story. That's what Jeremiah did. We find ourselves living here in this story. Too often what we tend to do, what I tend to do, is I tend to view the timeline, the narrative of my life as existing in the same timeline as everyone out there in the world. I don't think in terms of the coming of Christ and his death and his resurrection and then his coming again and how that factors into my suffering. I live and try to sprinkle in a little eternal life, a little Jesus here and there, and then I have the same desires and the same aspirations and expectations and hopes as the culture around me. One author put hope and its basis like this. Hope becomes the habitual way of life for those who see their lives stretched between Christ's first and second coming. Those are the defining features of my life. And I live in between those times and I look back to his birth and his first coming and I anticipate his second coming. And that is what brings hope. Know where you are in the true story of the universe, the story of this king. Now, what's so shocking about this king is that he came and he brought hope in the midst of suffering and the way in which he did it is unbelievable. And that's the second gift, unlikely gift. Hope is a gift to us. Humiliation is a gift that he participates in and brings that leads us to salvation. Now, we already found out, if you look back in Matthew 2, so you can flip back over there, Matthew 2, we already found out in verse 15 that Herod would die. The angel told Joseph about this while he was in Egypt, or while he was on the way to Egypt, that Herod would die. And now in verse 19, we see that he does. Look there again. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Now, this wasn't obviously terribly long after Joseph took the family into Egypt. But there is a Jewish historian named Josephus who, if you want some light reading this afternoon, you can find his description of Herod's sickness and death. And it is very uncomfortable reading. It's horrifying to read, actually. Um, but what's crazy about Herod's death is he was quite sick and knew he was going to die, and he knew that people would rejoice at his death. They would be very happy that he had passed away, most likely happy that he passed away in great pain and suffering. And so when he knew he was going to die, he rounded up a group of Jewish leaders, key leaders, and had them imprisoned and commanded his guards to put these leaders to death the second that Herod passed away. And he did this so that the people would not rejoice and so that they would have reason for lament and sadness at the moment of his death, even if it wasn't over his death. Quite a guy. Well, the angel informs Joseph, who's living in Egypt, that Herod has died, and here's what he says to him, verse 20, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, interestingly, he tells him to go back to the land of Israel, but doesn't tell him specifically where to go. Joseph 
looks at the situation and assesses the situation and decides where to go. Look at this, verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And then the Lord confirms his suspicions. The rest of that verse. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And so Herod divided the kingdom up into several pieces and gave his sons these different pieces and a particularly cruel one of his sons, very much takes after his father, ended up reigning in Judea. And so Joseph doesn't go back to Bethlehem, but goes back to where he'd originally been from, Nazareth. Look at verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, once again, verse 23, you see our word fulfilled there. Here's the problem, though. You can search your entire Old Testament, read it from front to back, and you will not find anything about anyone being called a Nazarene. You're just not going to find it there. So did Matthew mess up here? Oops, we found an error in our Bible. No, that's not what happened. We need to rightly understand what Matthew is doing here, what's going on. Some people have tried, maybe you've heard this before, have tried to say that, that what's going on is that Jesus would take a Nazarite vow and that he would be a Nazarite in that sense. And not a Nazarene, but a Nazarite, and they're very similar. And so Matthew wants us to pick up on that here. The problem with that is there's no indication anywhere else in Scripture that Jesus took a Nazarite vow. They're not the same word, and there's no indication that Jesus had any sort of an ascetic lifestyle. In fact, if you remember, the Pharisees thought he was too much of a partier and that he hung out with sinners. That was the problem with Jesus, not that he was an ascetic, like a monk-like figure refraining from things. And so that clearly is not what Matthew is intending here. But I want you to notice what it does says, what it does say here in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets in the plural. So he's not just looking for one quotation here, but he's looking for something that the prophets overall, a theme that they draw their attention to, or draw our attention to. And it's something that was taught concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament, a theme that is there. Now, what do we know about the city of Nazareth in Scripture? Well, the Bible hints at what the cultural understanding of Nazareth was at this time. A couple verses. You're probably familiar with these. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, Nazareth was a place that was looked down on, even among Israelites. Acts 24, speaking Paul here, for we have found this man a, play, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's not a, not a compliment to say that here about Paul. It's derogatory, and it's meant to be that way, and it's understood that way. Now, Matthew has already pointed out to us that Jesus will have a lowly birth of humble origins. He's born in a small town in Bethlehem. And so this, I think, what Matthew's doing here is trying to draw our attention to the humble and obscure birth and life of Jesus. 
He is not one who is going to come in and reign from Jerusalem immediately with all political power. He's going to be one who is despised by people, who is looked down on. In the cultural stereotypes of the day, to be a Nazarene was to be an outsider. It was to be on the outskirts of the mainstream, to be looked down on, to be unimportant. In some ways, it would be like being a backwoods redneck for some people. That's how they viewed him. Obscure status. And this is something we do find in the Old Testament, isn't it? Psalm 22, which the New Testament helps us understand is messianic. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 49, talking about the servants specifically here. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. Two, one, deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And now here he goes on to connect this to his exaltation. But let me show you one more passage here talking about the coming servant of the Lord. I know you've heard this one. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was humble, despised, and rejected. And ultimately, this is what brings our salvation because the next verses in Isaiah 53 say this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's through his humiliation and through his death, being stricken there, that he will bring redemption. Hebrews 12 puts it like this, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His humiliation leads to his exaltation and our salvation. And then maybe nowhere more clear than this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So bring these two together. Here's what Matthew is saying about the ministry of Jesus. Not just that it was predicted in the Old Testament, but the shape and the form and the fullness of his ministry. The born king humbled himself to be despised and rejected by those he had created. He became poor. He took our suffering 
so that we could have hope and hope of new life through him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're astounded by what you have done for us. You have humbled yourself. You have come to the earth as one who is out of the mainstream, who is rejected and despised and looked down on. Ultimately, you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, as a, viewed as a, a criminal, as a sinner. And you took our suffering and our sin upon yourself And through that, you won an unbelievable victory over sin and over death so that now in our lives, as we're united with you, we can have hope in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of the most tragic circumstances imaginable, we can lift our gaze to you. We can remember your steadfast love and we can wait. We can wait because we know that you are faithful. You're consistent and you're good. And so we thank you for how these passages fill out our understanding of your life and of your ministry. Burn these things into our hearts so that we become people of joy, hope, and worship of you. It's in Christ's name we pray.